After some years of graduate education in Britain and the United States, Mark Kingwell found he had inadvertently perfected a form of idling for which he could get paid. In fact, you wrote The Idler, didn't you? The Idler's Oh, this is, that makes makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) He's professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto and a contributing editor of Harper's Magazine and has written for publications ranging from Adbusters and the New York Times to the Journal of Philosophy and Auto Racing Digest. Among his 12 books of political and cultural theory are the national bestsellers Better Living, The World We Want, and Concrete Reveries. In order to secure financing for their continued indulgence, he has also written about his various hobbies, including fishing, baseball cocktails, and contemporary art. Welcome to the Bibliophile. (laughs) Thanks. Glad to be here. We are going to talk about uh, your contribution to the Extraordinary, Extraordinary Canadians series uh, under the general editorship of John Ralston Soul that uh, Penguin has been publishing over the past year or two. I'd like to start with a a quote from the beginning of the book. You quote one writer as saying, a whole life could be contained in a few hundred pages, bottled like homemade chutney. (laughs) So is that what you did with Gould? That's what I tried very hard not to do. I think that was A.N. Wilson, actually, who's written biographies of various literary figures as well as Jesus. A long Roman fleuve whose main character is, is a literary biographer. The Lanthic Chronicles is writing about his family. He's one of the one of the many writers whose views on this I came to consider because the idea of a biography period, but especially of a, a short biography, uh, that you could contain, that you could you could perform this kind of pantry job of, of chopping up, pickling and containing seemed to me exactly the wrong thing to do, and especially as I got to know Gould better with respect to him, partly because he was such a chameleon and was constantly performing these disappearing tricks. He was a kind of master magician of the disappearance. So he, he was very much interested in his entire life in avoiding the biographical line. So it, it seemed particularly apposite to note that problem with biographies generally, and then specifically try to tackle that problem by various means of avoidance or illusion with gold. And what were those various means? Well, first of all, most most significantly for anyone who's picked up the book, uh, there is no chronological timeline and uh, no narrative in, in the usual sense. Uh, I broke the book into 21 short chapters, and the, the number was uh, is a reference to a uh, famous episode in Gould's life in 1955. He released the first recording of the, the Goldberg Variations, uh, this notoriously difficult piece by Bach, uh, which he would later record again in 1981, almost the only example of, of a piece that he recorded twice. He recorded some shorter things twice in his life. Uh, but, but many people see this, I think, appropriately as bookending of his performance-slash-recording career, these two versions of the, the Goldberg. And in the <coughs> opening area famous, beautiful area of the Goldberg, which is reprised at the end of the, of the piece, uh, he recorded the first version last. That is, the very first thing you hear on that recording is the last thing that he laid down. And he laid it down 21 times in the studio before he had a version that he was satisfied with. Uh, and I, I take, take this as, as just a very vivid illustration of the kind of perfectionist that he was, even at this very young age, in his 20s. And also that um, there's a very interesting metaphysical implication, which is that each one of those 21 takes 
is the same piece, but is also a different piece. So each one sounds slightly different. Each one opens up slightly different ideas of music. And this is very much Gould's world, this, this territory of interpretation of the same notes in ways that reveal it differently each time until he comes to one version, which is not the best or, or the most accurate or the right or the truest, just the one that he says, okay, now that's the one we put in the can. But each one of these others is already there and had to be got through to get that one. I see fractals when you tell me that. Very similar, but just minutely different. Yeah. What I, what I hope to do with these short chapters, each one themed to a kind of, broadly speaking, philosophical aspect of Gould's life and thought, was offered 21 takes on Gould. Not Gould's life, not Gould's story, not Gould's genius, but each one is a kind of uh, kaleidoscopic part of this. Coming at him from yeah. 21 different angles. Yeah, and yeah. I, don't, I don't suggest that I come up with a whole out of those 21, but that in some sense... This is, this is an honest and appropriate way to approach this subject. It's interesting you use that term, coming up with a whole, because uh, isn't that a, a big part of how Gould saw music? A, a tension between part and whole that is the essence of music. Yeah. Well, music is one of the, the most interesting things to write about in the field of aesthetics or philosophy of art because precisely it is, as I put it in the book, not so much a time-based medium as a time-revealing medium. It's a, re a medium whose essence is time. And that because of that, the, the sense of uh, expectation and resolution of the before and the after that makes for the experience of music, which if music is, is working, you don't think about that. You experience that without you, thinking about it. One thing I, I love in repetitive music is that comfort that you get knowing that it's going to, but then when it changes, it's quite dramatic. Yeah, that? I mean, w when, you, when you start to think about it a little bit, if you fine-tune your appreciation even a tiny bit, you start to realize just how much depends upon the satisfaction of having some kind of open theme resolved or returned to or even you know very basic musical things to have to have chords in sequence to return to the tonic etc etc all of these things that make for music and Gould was of course highly aware of that and taking all of these experiences and somehow building a larger experience out of them there are some contemporary theorists who are very much mu music in the moment Gerald Levinson is the, the leading voice in this uh, who thinks that there is no this this notion of expectation or phenomenology of music is all bunk and I've I've read and thought about that, and I just cannot see that that is correct. Mm -hmm. that, well, just based uh, on your own experience. Yeah. So it, it seems to me Gould's genius as an interpreter was to know that this is what goes on, even in the most untutored listener. Play yeah. between pardon Even if they don't know what's going on. Yeah, between before and after. And then using that, the idea of space and time, you have a chapter on architecture. That's a riff off something you say there. At the same time, the unifying thought in Gould's philosophy of music, and it is primarily as a philosopher of music that I mean to treat him here, is that the single most important aspect of music is architecture or line, the overall structure of a piece revealed in its beauty by the act of playing. Yeah, people often wonder why uh, Gould, who is without question the most talented performer and interpreter of this generation, maybe even of the century, 20th century, uh, was drawn to very, very traditional canon of classical music. And he did play some contemporary music, uh, modernist or experimental music, 
uh, but took no pleasure in it. And I think the, the answer is very simple. He, he had a mind that was so attuned in the way that Bachst was, for example, Jazz Bach, with, with whom he had a kind of lifetime conversation, to this, this kind of architectural or mathematical beauty. It's not just the beauty of the sounds, uh, but the beauty that is revealed by the way the sounds are arranged and experienced. Mm-hmm. And this idea of structure is essential to his notion of interpretation. But Return, doesn't he play around with he Bach, does. too? I was, was going to say, which to, is a contradiction. Well, it's a tension for sure. But to return to the fifty-five Goldberg, people, many people loved it. Many critics loved it immediately. But many people also found that because uh, Bach's Irv has no uh, tempo marks, right, which would only develop as a convention later, uh, you can legitimately play it at any tempo you like. And one of the things that Gould did with the fifty-five is play the Goldberg at a blistering tempo. Yeah, yeah. And he, he took other liberties. He didn't uh, perform the, the repeats, which is part of the actual piece. He thought that they were optional because uh, he was just playing the same things again. Yeah. And so he, he rips through that, that series of variations, 30 variations on the theme in record time. And people said, well, this, is, this isn't Bach, this is Gould. But this, I think, is part of what he's up to. It's that as an interpreter, he is a co-creator. And he would yeah. go on. He would go further in his theories to say, as a listener, you are a co-creator too. And it's not just about fiddling knobs on your, your uh, stereo system, although he did love that. You know, this is the era of hi-fi and so on. But he thought that the listener, this is a very Bergsonian notion of, of art, that only with the experience of the listener does the artwork fully realize itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I interviewed uh, Alex Ross about six months ago, and he said something quite similar in the sense that audiences got quite uptight if they were able to perceive that the performer was screwing around with the great work. And yet, that happened all the time back in the day. Yeah. It's, uh, it seems to have invaded our culture over the years yeah. to a point where it's sacrilege to do anything to the, to the work. Yeah. Well, Gould was well aware of this history, and I briefly trace it in, in the book that um, you know, the court musicians of, of the early modern period, the Renaissance and, and early modern period, later become the composers and, and players of what we know as classical music in this tradition. But they were, they were just socially a rank or two above servants, above cooks and so on. And then there's this kind of canonization that happens and the great institutionalization of, of music. Uh, and J.S. Bach himself was instrumental in this all happening. It moved, moves out of the church and into the concert hall, ultimately, in the mm-hmm. 19th and, and early 20th centuries. And then there's this, this air of pious reverence, both for the canon but also for the conventions of the concert hall. Yeah, so you can't clap at the, at the wrong moment, yeah. otherwise you... Right, and you know this absurd idea that, that performers should be in, in white tie and tails, <laughs> and that, that you mustn't make noise, you mustn't talk. And this is one of the many reasons that Gould abandoned concert performance at, uh, in 1964, at a very early stage in his career, because he just couldn't stand it. I don't. I, I mean, what I got or get though is this whole idea of perfectionism, and the fact that uh, he was also pretty nervous, and didn't want to screw up, and he he hated critics. Yeah. Uh, as you as you say, would you say that that was a, more of a driving force behind him abandoning? I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a complex. I try to untangle all of these reasons. He he gave reasons of different kinds at different times, and then they may not even be the real reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but he did famously say that it was the non-take-two-ness 
of the concert situation that he disliked most, that he could not do 21 takes. He couldn't even do two takes. There's only one. If, if he had a cold or if he yeah. saw someone in the audience that upset him or... And then so add to that now his now well-known uh, tics and mannerisms, some of which may be related to Asperger's or other conditions people have speculated about, but, you know, all the famous things. He was always cold, so he was wearing mufflers and gloves, and he yeah. soaked his hands in like hot water. a Canadian water. hoser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that uh, he, he famously, you know, didn't like human contact, didn't like people touching him, didn't like to shake hands. So all of this, you can imagine, makes the concert situation fraught for him. And uh, he realized, I think, that he had the power to, to do one of those disappearing acts, that this is the mm -hmm. ultimate disappearing act, to, to withhold performance. Was it at the height of his uh, popularity, too? It's, it's certainly at a very, very sharp point in his popularity. I mean, he'd been, been performing and re releasing recordings for less than 10 years, but he, you know, he just blew onto the scene in the yeah. mid-50s. And so, yeah, he... Uh, but also his performances were suffering, too, weren't they? Like, there, there are, yeah. There was the, the famous story um, in the, the big European tour, which is a brutal, crushing series of concert dates. He had to cancel some shows. He was sick in Hamburg for almost a month. Uh, there were some critical sniffs at performance gaffes. He missed a couple of cues, which, um, you know, for a concert musician is, is a terrible thing. It's like it throws off the whole orchestra. Yeah, right? it's like falling yeah. off the stage in, in a <laughs> play. So I think, yeah, he started uh, increasingly canceling dates rather than meeting them, and then after the, f the final co concert, um, said no more. Maybe what he's trying to do is, is retroactively justify philosophically why he quit yeah. performing. And Absolutely, yeah. yeah. By the time, there's, there's a famous disc that uh, Columbia released of it's another world you know people would go out and buy an LP record which was entirely an interview between Gould and, and a, a music uh, writer it's great you have to listen to it to get the full force of Gould's uh, spoken word but in that by that time he'd, he'd elaborated this whole kind of rationalization you know the non-take tunis the what he called the, the sort of um, gladiator or slave before the lion's quality of, of submitting to public judgment uh, the the conventionalism that I mentioned before all this deadening piety about the situation. Mm -hmm. And it was all now built up into a, this is very typical of him, that he would take his particular enthusiasms or strangenesses and build them up into a philosophical position. Yeah, and in fact, it's interesting, you have a, a, a chapter on genius, and you draw what the, the proximity of eccentricity to genius, and one wonders how much he's playing up this eccentric genius role. Yeah. It's, it's an enduring conundrum. You know, it, in, in our culture, it goes back at least to the ancient Greeks, the idea of divine um, inhabitation, you know, divine inspiration, that, that to be super creative in this, especially for them, music was you know, the, the sound of the universe and, and harmony moving, that this was a sort of madness. It had to be. No normal sane person could produce this kind of thing. And that, that notion has long uh, moved along through our culture. In, in the widest sense. And it's still there, so that, that people will say of someone who is very good at something, well, we have to forgive these other things because that person is a genius and we can't expect them to behave normally, whether it's eccentric behavior or sexual peccadilloes or, you know, what have you. Yeah, it's sort of a, sort of a, a pass, a free path. Yeah, and, and yet at the same time, so I'm, I'm skeptical, I think, as one rightly should be about that sort of sleight of hand, but at the same time, you have to leave open the, the possibility that someone who is supremely gifted, I mean, to a point which it 
actually becomes hard to imagine if you're not so gifted, even if you're in the same field of endeavor, to know the difference between you know this talent mm. and then something else. This this level where it, it takes it as you put it, he produces sounds music that no one else was able to produce. So it as you say it it rewrites the rules. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's one of the the let's call them pragmatic definitions of genius, that somebody becomes a, a figure who is working in a field to such a transcendental effect that nothing is the same after them. Whatever you do, you have to go through them. Yeah, you know? it's like Joyce. Uh, Joyce in, in writing, uh, people say W.G. Grace in cricket batting. You know, I mean, pick your genius. Mm. Uh, there's somebody who revolutionizes the way it's done such that agree or disagree, like or dislike, you have to go through that. And I think, I think Gould did that for the performance in the classical canon. I'm speaking with Mark <laughs> Kingwell, the author of uh, Glenn Gould, part of the Extraordinary Canadians uh, series that Penguin is producing. You get into a, a challenging discussion about that Gould does not merely hover between playing and not playing, as anyone might, but actively makes his not playing a kind of performance he plays, so to speak, with his potential to not play. Could you uh, untie that for us? Yeah, this is a, 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 an insight that I first saw articulated by uh, the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben in uh, one of his books talking about the ancient philosophical dispute about potential and actual, you know, what lies in potentia, what is actualized. And uh, Agamben suggests, and, and there's a kind of Gnostic um, tradition that suggests there's a third term that it's not just a binary function between potential and actual. There's a kind of a third term of pregnancy, right, which is not potential on the way to being actualized, but a sort of suspension or a holding. And I love this. And he actually mentions Gould in this. And the idea is that Gould is is suspending himself from the performance so that he is showing that his not playing is something he's actively doing, as opposed to someone who is merely not at this moment playing. So what, what you mean is that he could be playing better, but he's not? No. 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 It's more that the fact of his not playing is what he is playing. Right? He's playing his silence. But a anyone can play silence. Well, but can they? Because uh, the suggestion is that only Gould can do this because only he had the stature at the moment of, of the concert withdrawal to make that withdrawal an event, to make it an, an actual thing, something that he did. So you're not talking about the actual performance of the music, you're talking about his leaving the stage. Yes, but playing in that sense. Uh, and it's true, of course, that, that Gould went on to play many, many notes, many millions of notes afterwards, all in the recording studio. But it's the this withdrawal from, from that other sense of playing, the, public exposure, yeah. which is the suspension of pregnancy. You have to have a certain presence to, to make that absence noticeable. Exactly. Yes. Which is what he'd achieved. That's right. So okay. that the, the absence then becomes the presence that he is in the public mind. You know, yeah. he's that guy who doesn't play. And the, the ancillary effect of this in Gould's case is that the fact of recording becomes triumphantly important for him and for, for all of his fans at a time precisely when the technology of recording was such that he could actually make that a, an art uh, undertaking, an oeuvre, that didn't depend upon the stage anymore. It's an interesting uh, observation. 
that he wouldn't have been able to, to do to his satisfaction what he did if he was born 20 years prior. Isn't it interesting how technology often, what, is an incubator for genius, or maybe incubator is the wrong word, a yeah. facilitator? Facilitator, yeah. Well, and this is where you can, you can usefully line him up with the other great theorists of technology in our Canadian tradition, with McLuhan and Innes. And, the, the, you know, there's a certain amount of shoehorning that was going on. Those guys are both a generation or so older. Gould was fascinated by technology, and he, he thought recording technology was one of the great gifts to the world, as it is. I think I mentioned in there that there's a, there's a series of scenes in, in Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain where um, a phonograph is brought to the sanitarium where all the characters are trying to cure their tuberculosis. And the presence of this music, you know, the technology of music in that fairly primitive form transforms the, the little society. And just reading that as a modern reader, I remember when I read that book in college and I thought, the way we take for granted the idea of music's availability. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you had to go out and buy records, and that was the only way to get music. And what a, what a thrill it was to go down on Saturday morning to the record store and get the new, you know, Clash album or whatever it was. Whereas, you know, today, you can, even that sounds like it's from another planet because you can just download everything. Well, and also yeah. it does away with the impact of it. The, f the fact is that, as you note, bringing this magnificent sound into the room was extraordinary. Now it's taken for granted, but at that point it, it would have had greater impact on the listeners. Yeah. Gould is right, I think, in a trend, beautiful transitional moment where people were, you know, there was a lot of disdain for recorded music. That's why for, in the classical world yeah. uh, that the performance trumped everything, and especially with, with high fidelity and so on, people arguing, pushing back the other way. Uh, so he was right in that, that argument. I don't think there's another aesthetic revolution as significant, especially one that hinges on a technological change. Paint on canvas and paint on walls, paint on board. We bring art inside, sure. The idea that you can have music any time, yeah. of any kind. I think the idea that what the computer provides us with is a huge array of type fonts that we, we, we had to go out and physically purchase, that might be the closest. Right, yeah, that's good, good but, analogy. But still... The timeline, um, which is a standard feature of these extraordinary ca Canadians' biographies, mm -hmm. I included the, the year that the first iPod was marketed and uh, when the MP3 file technology was developed. Because I think Gould is already in the 1960s and 70s. He's a kind of pioneer of what that would mean. Here, the etymology of the word record, recorded, recording is, is I think, worth noting that it means uh, stored in the heart, you know, the, the chord part of record is um, cordero um, misericordia. So the idea that, they, you know, when we say somebody knows something by heart, that means that they can recite it whenever they like. It's Memorized in memory. It. Yeah. Uh, a recorded music means that, the, you know, the technology knows it by heart and is there, it's available. Uh, I should compliment you, incidentally, on, and not just in this book, in, in all the books that you write. That That's one of the most fascinating aspects of what you do is, is to bring the, the etymology to the fore, and it, it really adds a great deal to understanding. Well, thanks. I, I have been fascinated by that since, uh, I think, a, a very early age. And I can tell you that my students have, have confessed, that one of them anyway, that he had developed a, 
highly detailed parody of me that he would bust out over beers with his with his friends, and it always involved saying something like, "Well, the etymology yeah, of this word right. <laughs> takes every us back second to, word, right? Yeah, it takes us back to the Greek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, it, as I say, it really is enlightening. Um, that, there's a couple of things I, I wouldn't mind returning to. You mentioned Innes and McLuhan and technology. Could you drill down into that a little bit in, tr- in the comparison that you make between them and their, uh, I wouldn't call it a philosophy, but certainly their understanding of how technology has an impact on society and what Gould thought? Did he take some of their thoughts and put them into practice, or what, what happened there? I, I think it's less that than a kind of affinity because they're all in Toronto. Yeah, right? and that, that, that's not incidental. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and that much has been written about this now, by now, but at the time I think people were just kind of you know, inching towards the idea that there might be a sort of Canadian school of, of especially communications technology, which I think now most, most scholars would just admit straightforwardly is true. And the, the causes are obvious, that the importance of radio to Canadian culture in the mid-century, mid-20th century, the idea of Canada really as a kind of communications technology itself these the necessity uh, for it yeah and yeah. and that you know in, in a sense Canada is more of a radio broadcast than it is a nation you know and it's also a, like a, a fur trade route as well yeah but certainly by the time that McLuhan and Innes uh, are making these connections Gould is soaking up this thinking as I say I don't think there's a direct commentary or extension but it's more like a comfort level with technology and, and an interest in its possibilities, as yeah. opposed to the, the kind of reaction which was very typical in his world, which is to disdain it. Yeah, very much so. I mean, still today, uh, there is a legitimate argument to be made on both sides. And a live performance is, you can't replicate that. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why bands still tour. They, they tour because you can monetize tours much better than anything else now. But they tour so that they can, they can create this possibility. A, a Radiohead or U2 concert is clearly uh, an experience that can't be replicated on, on vinyl or mp3. It's interesting that he would again try to justify, engage in the argument that the recorded the recording is the equal of the live performance when it isn't. Yeah, I don't think equal. He would say superior, actually. That's why not equal. Now, there are certain asymmetries here. A classical music performance is never going to be as overwhelming a spectacle as you know a, a rock concert, just for, you know for obvious things like volume and style and yeah. so on. But being able to watch the, that's the thing. People, see them and right. People yeah, have the multimedia. Yeah. Even if it is on video, it's not the same. No, exactly. To be in the same presence, and we know this from other um, art forms like theater, which which are sustained by precisely that desire that you you don't watch a televised version of a play and have the same enjoyment as you do being in the theater when mm-hmm. the lights go down. So there is something that, that Gould glossed over there in the, in the pursuit of his own self-justifying argument. But there's something true about his position too, and that is that if he is a co-creator, and you as a listener are in, in turn a co-creator, his presence in the studio with the engineer uh, is essential to getting the best interpretation. That is to say, bringing out the, the most interesting and effective aspects of the piece. And maybe it's specific to him, you know. He he he, f- he perhaps didn't perform the way he could perform in a live performance, and that's the best that you can possibly hear of Gould is the recording. Yeah, that's true. I think that's just basically true. Yeah, 
uh, it was what he chose to give us and say, this is mm-hmm. me, this is my best. Interesting <clears throat> um, middle ground here, when Bruno Monsengen, the French filmmaker, was working with Gould on the 81 Goldberg, uh, filming him, uh, you can still see these on, still, you can now see these on YouTube, mm-hmm. you can still see the film, uh, and they're amazing because it's, it's as if it is a live performance, but when you pause to reflect, you realize that the film too, like all film, is a highly staged mm-hmm. and many takes edited, uh, kind yeah. of yeah, edited uh, achievement. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a wonderful sort of uh, illusion of, of the aliveness. And there's Gould in the studio, and you're sort of there with him. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if he had had time to develop this, he might have become even more interested in this idea of the filmed piece. Not the film performance, but the filmed piece. Mm-hmm. And he certainly was experimenting uh, towards the latter part of his life with radio documentaries. So he was very interested in editing uh, in all forms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it might have been just another step to go to film. And, and Monsanjan and he had a, a very effective collaboration on, on those films. It sounds to me like his perfectionism is at the core of of his of his output of his being. I'd say that's that's largely true. Yeah, uh, the yeah, there's the, a search, a kind of pathos in the search for the perfect piece, the perfect recording. Uh, but it's what about a pathology? Well, it might be, and it, the reason it might be is is that all art functions <clears throat> in a in a tension zone between constraint and possibility. There's there's no such thing as art without constraints, uh, but also there have to be possibilities. But that very fact means that there's no such thing as a perfect work of art. And you know, yeah, because uh, who's to say? Well, also it's it it's material. There's the 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 sounds themselves can never be perfect. Uh, so, in that sense, it's a fool's errand, but it's it's one of those fool's errands that makes for genius, ultimately. That someone who is that painstaking, mm. to the point, really, of, Persistent. Of, yeah, mm. of a, a certain madness, yeah. Uh, yeah, that they and they alone can take it as far as they can. Because they're their harshest critic, they're, they won't accept anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, I wonder if you could, uh, although although the book isn't chronological, could you just talk a little bit about his, um, the, the the end of his life? Uh, you know, I, I think about McLuhan and how tragic it was that this great communicator could only just sit there and say Bob over and over again. How did this man's life end? Well, the the. It, it ended far too soon. That's the first thing to say. He was only 50 years old. Uh, and he had notoriously said on more than one occasion that he would be dead by 50 uh, to family and friends. Uh, there's a certain, hence a certain self-fulfilling uh, aspect to this. Mm, almost an architecture. Yes. And the, the, the good thing we can say is that to the end he was producing recordings of surpassing brilliance. So uh, the 81 Goldberg is case in point. There are a couple of recordings after that which are, are you know, good, good for anyone, not great for Gould. But the 81 Goldberg, for many people, is, is an unparalleled ma- masterpiece. And that's just, just a, a year and a bit uh, before he died. Uh, he was, of course, by this time, 
uh, self-medicating to an alarming degree. He had cross prescriptions for various sleeping pills and painkillers and, and other kinds of medications. Uh, he gained a lot of weight. He was increasingly reclusive and uh, going into a physical decline, which was marked. When people saw him, he was communicating almost entirely by telephone, too, by this point. He loved these late-night phone conversations with people all over the place. Uh, but when people did see him, they were often shocked at how he had deteriorated. As a young man, if you look at the pictures, he was he was startlingly handsome. Mm. Handsome. Mm. Uh, and by his his mid forties, he had uh, become, as one person said, a sort of Dracula figure. You know, with receding hairline and, and paunchy face. And uh, any and then, explanation for that? Well, the the side effects of the drugs, presumably. But it was what? It was a depression or. Uh, what, what was it? Well, he complained. He complained tirelessly about headaches and, and sleep um, deprivation, deprivation, yeah, yeah. Um, insomnia, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I, I mean, I, I confess when when you go th you spend some time with someone to write even a short biography, you go through many moods mm. thinking about them, yeah. you know, admiration, dislike, irritation, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I can never quite get over the sadness that I feel at this the thought of this ghoul who. Uh, was not without friends, but almost without human contact, and his body declining rapidly as he really pushed himself downhill. And uh, pushed himself downhill by by being a workaholic, or well, just by this the the physical abuse of of, of the drug taking, and not. But the reason that he yeah. was taking the drugs was that there was something wrong right. to start and with, and that's that's what I mean. That he couldn't find any any rest. Yeah, he couldn't find any peace, and. And Sounds I, like depression. Yeah, and it may have been. I don't know, but it, I I say in uh, not in the book, but in the uh, documentary film about him, it came to me that, and this is probably obvious once you, the thought is is articulated, he was only at rest when he was in the music. Mm -hmm. Music was a kind of cocoon. Yeah, and that he could be in there, and in the 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 concentration of playing the music, the music would would. That's when he was fully alive. Yeah. Yeah. And and at at a kind of rest which the rest of his life didn't provide. Mm. Uh, and so that's that's another element of the pathos here for me. I'd just like to wind up with um, with a, 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 you have a chapter called Wonder and uh, um Perhaps I could get you to read the, the, the couple of at least couple of paragraphs there. Sure. Since ancient times, philosophers have called this experience of conjoined expansion and recognition wonder. Wonder is that which excites the mind without offering itself to smooth understanding under the power of a ready concept. There is, I think, no better word for the exhilarating, demanding, and self-justifying experience of encountering a Glenn Gould interpretation, even if sometimes he has to try very, very hard to find the line of its reasoning for us to consider. Gould, in an optimistic mood in 1962, on the wonder of art, quote, the justification of art is the internal combustion it ignites in the hearts of men and not its shallow, externalized public manifestations. The purpose of art is not the release of a momentary ejection of adrenaline, but is rather the gradual lifelong construction 
of a state of wonder and serenity. Yeah, so I wonder, um, is, he, is he talking about his life as, or our life as the recipient, or his life as the creator? Uh, what? Uh, I think all of those. Uh, you know, this this idea again, the uh, the ancient Greek philosophers uh, said the experience of wonder is, is the, the birth of philosophy because not because you can tame wonder as, as I say you can't actually bring it under a concept it resists that well it's defined by not being that exactly yeah. and so it, it pushes you in a way that is the opposite of smooth is the opposite of understanding and makes you push 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 and the, the endlessness... Push of, to understand? Well, that's what you think you want. But what you find in, in the constant disappointment of understanding yeah. is philosophy itself. Yeah. And so... The, the so it's the journey toward trying to get to a destination of understanding. Yeah, the, the infinite task, as uh, Husserl put it, of philosophizing, that uh, this is a game without an end. And so and that's... The, the thrill is the, is the wonder that you, you continue to... It's a gift, though, isn't it? I mean, to first of all, to have the curiosity, and second of all, to have to experience that wonderful feeling. It's it's not something that everyone enjoys, is it? But it's curious you say that because uh, many people, myself included, think that everyone does experience it, especially at a younger age, and then we learn all kinds of ways to domesticate it or put it off to one side or or bracket it in, in a bad sense, and we close ourselves off. From it, <clears throat> which is why art remains one of the things that people have have complicated attitudes towards, because it might well excite wonder in them, but then they don't know what to do with that, and hence critical judgment, for example, about art. Not that I have anything against it as such, any more than I have anything against understanding or concepts, uh, but the idea that you can somehow tidy it up, square it away, and put it off to one side is precisely what wonder won't let you do. Yeah, Da Vinci talks about living with uncertainty, and maybe he's getting at the same sort of thing. Yeah, I think... And Gould then, sorry, Gould, uh, Gould perhaps got to a point where he realized he couldn't do any better? Well, this is... I, I, one can speculate endlessly, put it that way. What I found fascinating was this tension that you find. If you read his published writing, he wrote a lot of very interesting stuff, we listen to the recordings. He is a perfectionist. The the precision, um, you know, almost a machine. People thought it, you know, all of this kind of tightness. And at at the same time, at the center of it is uh, an openness, a kind of uh, free falling quality. Experimentation. Well, and just just uh, I think a letting go. You know, so. It's it. There is no resolution to this. The, mm. the, you know, he's the ultimate control freak, and yet at the center of it, there's a sort of peace and serenity that he thinks is the essence of art and especially of music. Uh, he thinks that he has to do it over and over and over again to get it right, but when he gets it right, everything just opens up, and it's not tight anymore. It's just for the listener or for him. For the listener, I think at that point. Yeah. Okay. And then, if you put it that way, he's he's the sacrificial tool or vessel, you know, he's the one who's tying himself into knots 
in order to create this possibility for us. But I think I don't think he would put it that way. I think he would say instead that we all serve music. You know, composer, interpreter, engineer, listener. Uh, music is uh, something that that each one of us is is playing our part in creating. Thanks for writing the book. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Mark Kingwell, who's the author. Uh, now, this isn't most recently. You wrote this... 2009, I think. Glenn Gould is part of the uh, Penguin Extraordinary Canadians series. Uh, what are you working on right now? I am working on the sequel to The Idler's Glossary, uh, which will be out in, in a matter of a few weeks, called The Wage Slave's Glossary. We thought there was some unfinished business when it came to the language of work and idling. Is that Biblioasis? That's right. And I'm at now seriously at work at a long-deferred political theory project on the future of democracy. Thank you very much. Thank you.